Welcome to the Reading Women Podcast, where women read books by or about women. Today is the second part of our podcast, where we'll talk more in depth about the books that made us passionate about reading books about women and feminism as a whole, which just means we get to talk more about books about women. And why wouldn't we want to talk more about books I know. The books we I love? mean, <laughs> we do it all the time. And there was so much we left out of the first podcast. I know. It's actually why we're doing this one is because we're like, well, we could have talked so much more about, you know, our favorite books. And we're like, wait, we can. So uh, we I'm excited to talk about them in more in depth. Yes, definitely. And we hope that if uh, you have picked up a copy of these and you could uh, read along or figure out what we're talking about, but we're also read some quotes so you won't be totally lost. Um because we're going to do a little bit of close reading, uh, so you can get a little more meat of the books, which is cool. And that way, you'll be able to understand, too, a little bit about the author's voice and kind of how that works without having to read the book. Yeah. Or like if nice, you haven't read the book yet. Sort of like Spark Notes, only it's Autumn and Kinder Notes. Exactly. <laughs> we really need to trademark that before someone runs out and do it. <laughs> So just as a refresher before we get started, so last week Kendra talked about her favorite books, which were A Room of One's Own, and then her favorite author, which was, oh goodness, I've drawn a blank. Tamara Pierce. (laughs) Tamara Pierce. My favorite fantasy authors, yeah. And then I talked about the Nancy Drew series, and I also talked about Flannery O'Connor. So today we're just going to talk about Two of these, which is Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, and then Mystery Manners by Flannery O'Connor. And I think, Kendra, you were going to start us off. Yes, with A Room of One's Own. And so today we are going to be talking about the women in education um, slash independence that Virginia is really pushing for in this book because um, she herself wanted the freedom. And she was privileged as a upper middle class woman. Um, but she wanted all women to have this independence. And a lot of times when a woman got married, you know, she wasn't allowed that kind of independence. Um, so she wanted women to be able to earn their own money and be able to keep it, which was rare at the time. Uh, was Were women available or were women allowed to enroll in college at this time? I'm not sure. I know there were separate colleges, but I think that if... There were co-ed colleges. They were rare um, because she grew up in the early teens when she would have been in college, uh, 19 teens, something. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there are very many co-ed at all, if any. But I'm not a historian, so don't quote me on that. But I want to hold you to it. I know she wasn't allowed to go. Um because of her family and, and whatnot. So um, so let's do uh, this first quote, which is, all I could do was offer you an opinion on uh, upon one minor point. A woman must have money in a room of her own if she is to write fiction. And that, as you will see, leaves the great problem of the true nature of women and the true nature of fiction unsolved. Basically, women should be independent. That's like the thesis of the entire book is that women must have money in a room of her own. Which is important. As you know, I just finished 
Rebecca Traster's book, All the Single Ladies. And that's one thing that she stresses too in her book is how women need to have their own money and their own space in order to be, in order to feel empowered and be successful. Yeah. And I think it also talks about the isolation, like having a independence and not having anyone uh, need her in a, in a, like all the time, like she should have alone time. She does a good job in this book of showing, of like contrasting. Cause I know she talks at length about during, I guess it'd be Renaissance era, how poets and writers would have, male poets and writers would have patrons who would pay for them and allow for them to have the time and space to write and create art. And I mean, women didn't have that luxury because they were expected to, you know, take care of the men or to bear children. It just wasn't available to them. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that um, a lot of times women were, you know, they're defined as just wives and mothers, but men have a vocation. And women are just, you know, wives and mothers. Well, being a wife and especially a mother is so important. Like, she's not just a mother. She's so many other things. Right. Um, and it's, And when I read Tracer's book, I was just amazed at all the laws and limitations that we have forgotten uh, that were put upon women, especially married women who weren't allowed to work a lot in many states after they got married. And that's why the female school teacher became a thing because after uh, the Civil War and well, any war, basically, there were always a lot of single women because there weren't enough men to marry them. And so they became teachers. Um, and there were all these rules <laughs> ridiculous for single women teachers. I think, too, that I think Wolf especially does a good job like showing that disconnect because if you think about it you know it is the women who did all the things that were necessary for the men of her time to do what they did I think for me one of the images from this book that stuck with me was the dinner scene which and there's that famous quote the one cannot think well, love well, sleep sleep well if you have not dined well. And I was thinking about that in preparation for this podcast and how I think a lot of people take that quote literally like taking food into the body. But if you look at the context of the the that quote, it's talking about people gathering around a table and sharing ideas and, you know, feeding yourself intellectually and she shows very clearly in that very long dinner sequence how women were completely excluded from those intellectual conversations. Yeah, I think the idea for her especially was that women being intellectual um, was not considered a thing, you know, when she was growing up and she was very frustrated by that. Um, yeah, she she had a tutor and she studied Greek and different... Um, like the classics kind of idea a little bit. And then um, she moved on. Her her dad was involved in um, the Dictionary of National Biography. Uh, and so she would write entries and stuff for that as well. And so she was very, very intelligent, very intellectual. And her dad acknowledged that. And he just warned that she wasn't a woman. I think she's just frustrated. You know, you can't live life if you're not educated. 
in right. a similar way. Like women deserve that opportunity. Um, and she didn't marry until um, she was an old maid, basically, by their standards. And she married Leonard Wolf, and he thought she was great. Um, he was a writer as well, and he published her books for her and gave her room to write. And That's so cool. It is. It's very cool. I'm glad that she didn't marry some loser who suppressed her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, one time, uh, Linton Stratchy, Strat- whatever his name is, forgive me. Anyway, Linton, a, a gay guy, proposed to her because... Uh, he was good friends with her, and it seemed to be she didn't want to get married, and, you know, he struggled as a gay man, and so, but she turned him down, like, no, like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and both later, you know, they stayed friends, and both, they were both thankful that she said no in the end, but it was just really surprising then when she married Leonard, because um, she never wanted to marry anyone. Hmm. She, I think, because she worked, like she, her brothers were in academia and she was a, very close with her younger brothers, but she faced a lot of men who um, were in academia and were very much that women were inferior. And I think this drove a lot of this books because you can see um, like this one quote where it says, possibly um, when the professor insisted a little emphatically upon the inferiority of women, he was concerning not with their inferiority, in their inferiority, but with his own superiority. And it's the idea that if a woman becomes his equal, then he is no longer greater. And she talks about that a lot with writing and women having a um, few examples to follow. And it's just that like, passage, especially, really resonated with me. Yeah. And I realized that I had had some similar moments where I was angry and I didn't know why I was angry. But then looking back on, like, oh, that's why. <laughs> Yeah, like sometimes when men ask you if you're going to vote the same way as your husband or if they ask if you've asked your husband permission for something or oh, <laughs> man. you just look at them like, what? And you're like, I can't believe this still happens. But um, I can't imagine that being like especially the norm in her own era and how much this must have been a, a phenomenal book at the time, but also really on the edge of uh, propriety, I guess. Yeah, because, I mean, she's really, I I'm was surprised at how, I, I guess, modern, I don't know the right word, but how maybe prophetic is the right word that her, her thoughts are, because she really touches on some things about literature and women in literature that are things that we're now just coming to understand, you know, or that we've spent the last 50 years or however long to try to understand. She's just amazing. I just have I just have no words. And like we're we're not gonna go into this today, but she goes on about how women's chastity is their only value and men write about women as if they're like these objects of virtue and like they're and she's like, that's not actually a real woman and uh it's so amazing. Um but before we run out of time for Virginia, we do need to talk about Shakespeare's sister. Yes, definitely. She is amazing. And for those who haven't read A Room of One's Own, she does a section on um, a imaginary sister of Shakespeare that if she had been born a woman with Shakespeare's genius, she never would have been able to express it. And she does this imaginary little bio of the sister going off into the theater world and being ruined and never being educated and 
um, then she applies that to you know the greater world. How many Shakespeare's has the world missed because they were women? And that makes me sad. Oh man. Uh, like I, that's that's one of the images that I remember the most because like in in science and the arts and any field at all, you know, just because there were women, they weren't educated or uh, weren't treated as equals, and they weren't allowed to develop their talents. It's interesting because you know Jane Austen is considered one of the first great women writers, and there's no way that she was the first like she's not an anomaly like I feel like I always felt like she's just some sort of like anomaly that just cropped up in the middle of nowhere but if you think about it like there had to have been other women who wrote even if they didn't publish so it's just really she like that section is amazing and how she I mean she goes into great detail about how if the roles were reversed like if these plays that we consider some of the greatest literature in the English language would they've even been seen yeah and I think she goes on you know about how education is part of that and I was thinking you know about how many we've missed but I was reading Catelyn Moran's um, memoir for the Emma Watson book club and she says you know in her traditionally blunt way you know we need to quit pretending that there are these invisible women that exist she said she says Quite frankly, we were, you know, women were not educated, so we did not have the opportunity. So even if they had the talent, you know, they weren't allowed to cultivate it. And it just really broke my heart because I was holding out these hopes, you know, like there are these women like in their closets, like writing, writing stuff. And it was just so sad. It is sad. I think it's important to note, though, that these are not archaic things of the past, though, when because when I went to graduate school, there were several people that I knew who they were like, oh, are you going to graduate school to get a husband? And I mean, this was like (laughs) three years ago. And I was so like, that really upset me because I was like, no, I'm going to graduate school because I want to further my knowledge and enrich my mind. Like not because I want to get a husband. So I, I think as always, it's important to note that these are not these are things that we still have to deal with and things that are still deeply embedded in society. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I was asked, I got married in grad school and they're like, "Oh, are you going to come back next semester?" I'm like, "Um, yes." Like, what? You know, and you know, my husband moved out to the East Coast so I could continue grad school and Good for him. Yeah, and he and he paid my way like through. Like he's the one that worked and paid my way and I was just I've just been so proud of him that he did you know I told him it was his turn but I don't think he's the grad school type at least at the moment and that's okay that's fine you're just you think of the quote another quote to quote all the single ladies again um <laughs> Susan B. Anthony when her friend got married saying when she she they wrote letters and she hadn't heard from her in a while and she's like I'm wondering if you're either dead or married. <laughs> like people expect you to quit existing because you get married. It's so weird. Is, is, is Tracer the one that had the quote um, about the, was it Charlotte Bronte that got married and um, her husband didn't like her talking to her best friend yes. about personal things? Yes. Oh my goodness. What? He censored her letters. Uh, oh. 
<laughs> and I couldn't uh, help thinking about, I was like, hmm, I wonder if Sam was thinking about what Autumn and I are talking about. Could you imagine if Sam and Josh censored all of our messages? That would, that take would a be long. a full-time job. <laughs> so that's a room of one's own. Um, we, of course, will have links to these books if you miss titles or things we talked about in our show notes. And then next, I guess it's time for me to talk about Mystery and Manners. Yes. Yes, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. So Mystery and Manners is by Flannery O'Connor. And the first quote that, it, it's a, just to refresh your memory, it's a collection of essays and interviews by Flannery during her lifetime. And it, there's, it's a wide range of topics. But the, a primary topic that we're going to take for today is women and mannerisms. And I think that fully encompasses the range of things that she discusses in her essays. And the first quote that I'm going to read says, To know oneself is to know one's region. It is also to know the world. And it is also, paradoxically, a form of exile from the world. The writer's value is lost, both to himself and to his country, as soon as he ceases to see that country as a part of himself. And to know oneself is, above all, to know what one lacks. Growing up in the South, you know, it's, it's difficult to figure out, like, where you fit because so many people have such strong opinions about where you grew up. And I think that she does a really good job of explaining clearly the importance of knowing where you live, regardless of where that is and how it affects you. Yeah, and I really liked how she emphasized you can't escape you know, where you grew up and that, that mannerisms and, and the nature of the area is ingrained in you. And so for writers right. who try to write about places they didn't come from, it's, it's not really successful. Um, I, I do believe you can adopt a new country, but you'll always have where you came from somewhere in you. Oh, definitely. And I think that that's important because then when you, when you talk about yourself to other people, it. I mean, how can you? I mean, how can you talk about yourself without talking about the place you came from? You really can't do it. It uh, changes the way you view the world. So definitely. For example, I came from an itty bitty tiny town of under a thousand people, and I go to you know where Adam and I went to college, and it's like, oh, what a huge city! Like, you know, and and uh, other people came and they're like, oh, what a tiny, cute little town! I'm like what? Well, it's like now where I live, the town where we went to school, it seems like an itty-bitty town when I go back there. Yeah. So I, I just thought she was really interesting how you have to be true to who you are in, in the region. And she talks about, um, uh, in one of her essays, she's giving an address at a Southern Writers Conference. And she talks about some of the stuff that she read for the conference and how none of it was Southern. Because it, yes. cause she's like, the names of the cities were interchangeable and nothing about yeah. the writing expressed the region. I think, too, like, I'm going to read another quote that really resonated with me. Because it, it, regardless of where you live, everyone has a different experience within that place. And she really is perceptive to notice that. And one of the things she says in her essays is 
Southern identity is not really connected with mockingbirds and beaten biscuits and white columns any more than it is with hookworm and bare feet and muddy clay roads. It is not made from what passes, but from those qualities that endure regardless of what passes because they are related to truth. So I feel like especially Southern culture is highly commercially marketed and she kind of is like, you know, like, you can critique, like, get past all of that, all the surface-level marketable stereotypical stuff, and let's get at the heart of the matter. And as I mentioned in our last podcast, she didn't like Margaret Mitchell, which I think is one of the Southern authors that is very closely tied to the South and popular, uh, or has a popular representation of the South. But if you've read or watched Gone with the Wind, it's a very narrow, superficial kind of interpretation of the South. Uh, so she, and if you've read Flannery's short stories, there, I mean, there are some elements of that in her works, but not really, like they're, they're secondary. She really tries to get to the truth of human nature, which is universal. It's very interesting because she talks about uh, the the story where the P, the woman with the PhD and the prosthetic yes. leg tries to seduce the Bible salesman, and then the guy steals her leg. Good country people. Okay, right? So I read that in class, and I totally forgot who the author was. And so she's talking about the essay, and I remembered it. And thinking about it, yeah, it's like you can tell it's the South by the way they behave mm-hmm. um, and the way they the way they act, and it's not because of uh, symbols that she just drops in there that are, like, Southern, quote-unquote, but because it's just their mannerisms. She really, too, kind of campaigns in her stories against the typical Southern woman. Like, she does have that trope in her stories, but every time (laughs) there's, like, that, especially Southern women, especially there's, like, that Southern woman in there, she, like, by the end of the story, they've had to, had an epiphany and have to, had to come to reality with themselves and really confront truth. So she was not about superficiality at all. Interesting how she does, she talks about um, the, you know, the diversity in the South. Um, mm-hmm. And she'll talk about, like, being genuine to that region. And, you know, there's tons of different types of, you know, Southern. And she doesn't say that specific, specifically, but she talks about um, that and how, a Southern writer writes um, about their specific type and um, their type of uh, Catholicism and checks about Elena and then versus the country. Um, and in college, I was roommates with three people from three different parts of the South. And I come, you know, from Southern Ohio, so I'm not a Northerner either, but I spent an entire year being called Northerner and they were all so different. But all mm. of my Southern roommates were similar in that one, like, southern way and it just seemed to me like southern writing can also be very similar so you have the Catherine Ann Porter she was talking about um and Eudora Welty and Flannery O'Connor all so different but they all have that one aspect of whatever makes the south like the south right which I I can't really express what what that is I, I think she I think Flannery would define it as a way of viewing the world and she goes into great detail about what that means in a couple of her essays. Just 
coming from a place of brokenness and how that changes how you view the world. So, I mean, she's a very smart woman. And that's one thing if you read these essays, and this is something that really spoke to me is, you know, people from the South often have a reputation for not being smart. But she quotes, I mean, the the list is so long. She quotes Joyce and Kafka and Henry James and Flaubert and uh, Walker Percy and like like bishops and cultural events and you know important things. So she's obviously a very intelligent, very well read woman, which I really appreciate. She's very funny, like in the way she talks too. And she's hilarious. She when she talks about um, Southern writing, she talks about writing about freaks and she says we in the south still write about freaks because we're one of the only people that can identify them or something like that (laughs) it's kind of true (laughs) well um she talks about being in the south you know you're still in the bible belt and so she could still write about christianity and it be accepted right and i think and she talks about that that ties in with being able to identify freaks with you know the belief in ultimate truth um and she (laughs) She's just really adamant, you know, like her faith enables her to write better about her world and about the world around her. She is another one of my, the quotes that I really like um, that just kind of shows how smart and funny she was. So she's, her stories, I've been called grotesque, weird, bizarre, whatever, but she writes in one of her essays about her aunt who, and I can't remember the name of the short story right now, but it is the one where the daughter is married off to this guy who ends up stealing the car and then leaves the daughter at a diner. So she talks about her aunt reading the story, and um, she says, I have an aunt who thinks that nothing happens in a story unless somebody gets married or shot at the end of it. But I have other sentiments about it, which are not suitable for public utterance. <laughs> so I just think that's hilarious because, like, she she acknowledges that, like, her stories are not typical, but she's still enough of a, has enough of the Southern lady in her, I guess, not to say mean or crude things in public. Yeah, she, she's hilarious. That's one of the things when we first started, like, her voice is very blunt, which where I grew up, that was definitely the mode of uh, expressing yourself. She was talking about um, how her religion enabled her to face reality. And she said, anyone who believes that reading and writing is escaping reality doesn't really know what they're talking about because reading and writing forces you to face what is real. And it seemed to me, I haven't read as much of her fiction, but it seemed that her writing just that's where the grotesque came from because that is life. She was talking about the, her situational writing about like the lady with the, the leg, you know, that sounds like a farce, but you know, reality also includes the unlikely. And so right. I think she has a nice balance of romantic writing and realism. I definitely think that's true. And so that's an overview of mystery and manners. And it's kind of, like it, it is a collection of essays, so it's not really one linear thought the way that A Room of One's Own is, but she still offers a very fresh and, as we were just talking about, realistic um, look at what it means to be a writer and what it means to be a religious writer and what it means to be a writer in the South. And 
it's definitely a good book to read. If you haven't read her work, it's a good place to start because it kind of gives you a framework. But if you have read her work, it really gives a lot of tools for interpreting what would seem as like really bizarre stories. Yeah, and she it was the it was published after she died. Um, yes. So one of the critiques has been that it's not a cohesive whole, but I mean, it is a collection of different uh, speeches and essays that she wrote. So, and I think for me, in response to that specific critique that it's repetitive, I think it just shows what was on her mind and what was important to her. The things that she was thinking about were the things that she always talked about. And she expresses each. Uh, each essay expresses it a little differently. And so you can ask yourself, well, what about this instance? And she probably would cover that in another essay. And I think exactly. it rounded out her, her view. And what I thought was interesting that both A Room of One's Own and Mystery and Manners are a lot of from uh, lectures that they both gave. And I think you can get some of their speaking voice. And Definitely. I've listened to Virginia Woolf, and she's super boring. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Virginia. But I think that I think Flaherty would have a bit more fire and less of the you know English properness to her, and just their views are just so. I don't think they would have gotten along if they had met in person. I don't. I don't know that they would have either. It's hard <laughs> to say. There is one audio recording of Flannery giving a speech. I will have to find it and make sure it's put in the show notes. So far, it's the only record voice recording of hers that I found. And it's, it's interesting. Worth a listen. And they're both quite unique individuals. And if you hadn't guessed already, that is what inspired our logo is um, our loves of Virginia and Flannery. Hopefully, this episode of our podcast gives you a little bit more of an insight into these authors and the people who influenced our reading lives. Is there anything else you want to add, Kendra? Um, that's it, pretty much. We hope you enjoyed this uh, in-depth look at these books and that if you were looking for a bit more, that this satisfied that need for more Virginia and Flannery. And hopefully it, it's, it will inspire you to read these books for yourselves and to come to your own conclusions about them. So next time on our podcast, we are going to talk about some of our favorite books by women of color, all types of women of color, all types of books. So, but in the meantime, you can find me, Autumn Privet, on Twitter, Instagram, let's see, anywhere else, at Autumn Privet, and you can find Kendra at Katie Winchester on also Instagram, Twitter, and let's see. Thanks for listening to the Reading Women podcast, and we will talk to you next time. See ya.